0: Hi, I'm gonna, as always, snatch some time when I see <clears throat> the window to try to uh, do the biography podcast for, one for the week, and right now, I drop my daughter off here, and I drop, whatever, I uh, have a few minutes. So, I heard this week is remaining Yona, that's what I can do. The famous remaining Yona Girona, who, as you probably know, is Shari Teshuba, and, um, here we have a... They're always very interesting, but this one is very uh, strange, perhaps, in some respects. Uh, not for reasons you imagine. <coughs> Benigno was a big rabbi in Spain, Sephardi, in uh, the 1200s. He didn't live a long life. He was in his early 50s when he died. Early 50s. And uh, he was the first cousin with the Ramban. Uh, I think the, the parents were brother and sister. If I remember correctly, the Ramban's mother the sister of Benio's father, something like that. Which means they came from the aristocratic rank of the Sephardic Jews. But I can't use the word Sephardi over here because if you're talking the 1200s, remember, as I've said over and over again, I know some know it and some won't know it even when I say it. There was no Spain, but there were different kingdoms. And uh, and the Rebbenio lived in Aragon, Catalonia. Uh, And this is something I've spoken about them number of previous occasions, maybe some of you will recognize it, but he lived in a very interesting period for the following reason. Uh, once upon a time, there was no Jews in Spain, and then there were Jews in Spain, mostly when the Muslims conquered it. And when the Muslims took it over, so Jews moved there from all over the place, and then you have what he called the Golden Age of the Jews in Islamic Spain, with those who shown him and poets and, and, you know, grammar people and artists and so on and so forth. Fine. But then that shut down because in 1150 the Muslims, a different group of Muslims took over in Spain and they closed down Judaism. That's when the Rambam, Maimonides, was a young boy. So after that, uh, from 1150 to 1492, there's no such thing as the Jews in Muslim Spain. Instead, the Jews in Islamic Spain either had to convert or flee or they died. Uh, where did they flee to? So many, many went north to the upper part of Spain, which by that time was part of the Christians. See, the Muslims conquered most of Spain in the 700s, but then the part they left over was like a tumor. If you don't get rid of it totally, it'll come back. And little by little, the Christians, little, steadily, slowly and steadily, over 800 years, 800 years, I say, uh, little by little, we conquered all of Spain from the Muslims. So if you're talking at the period I'm after 1150, so uh, Spain was more or less 50-50, the upper half was already ruled by the Christians, and the southern half was ruled by the Muslims. If you give it another 50, 60 years, uh, then two-thirds and three-quarters even is ruled by the Christians. That's the world in which Benigno of Garona, because he was born in 1205, 1210, actually, and he only lived to be 1265, 1264, something like that. So, you know, first half of the 1200s, as we say. And he's from Barcelona, so that's the area that you and I know as the north-eastern part of Spain. I've spoken about it a number of times. Uh, many famous rabbis came there from there. Uh, that's what they call today Catalonia, which is a very distinct part of Spain. The language is not your regular Spanish, and they don't like being part of Spain, and what used to be called the Kingdom of Aragon. <clears throat> now, listen closely. The Muslim... Era, the, the, the Jews in Islamic Spain closed down in 1150 when the Muslims turned around and prohibited Judaism. Until then, there had been a certain style of learning among Spanish Jews, what I would call the Arabic style of learning. This is what we call um, the RIF, uh, the Rimagash, the Rambam, people like that. It's a certain style. I don't want to go into it exactly now, but it wasn't, it wasn't exactly the way Rashi and Tosu said it. In a certain way. And it evolved on its own from the Arabic world. I might remind you, the Gronim lived in the Arabic world. Once put the Yomar together and, you know, edited it and so forth. Now, um, at the same time, there was something called Ashkenaz. <laughs> These are the Jews in northern France and in uh, German, western Germany. People like Rashi and the Balitosis. So they're all living at the same time, but they're in very different cultural contexts. So, the, I'm speaking now very specifically about Gemara learning, not the other stuff. So, the people like the Rambam, as they say before, and, and Rimagash, and people like that, they had one Mahalach in learning, and their yeshiva was organized along those lines. Uh, <clears throat> whereas at the same time, in you know, a couple hundred miles to the north, in uh, northern France and in uh, western Germany, the call a different style of learning had evolved mainly what you and I associate with Tosus. Now, the Jews in Spain had one way, and the Jews in France and Germany had a different way, and they usually didn't mish. However, the whole yeshiva world was destroyed in 1150 in southern Spain, in Muslim Spain. I might recall that Rambam uh, had to pretend to be an Arab and then flee the country eventually because he couldn't even pretend. Uh, until he ran away to Egypt. So it became possible to live as a Jew and certainly to learn uh, Torah in uh, Islamic Spain. So that became only possible in the upper half of the country, in the Christian parts, which are mainly the two big kingdoms of Castile and Aragon. Castile being the central part of the Christian Spain and Aragon being on the eastern side against the Mediterranean. So, So something interesting happens. Since the old yeshiva system collapsed because of this uh, political change, this uh, religious persecution change, so what did people in the upper half do in Spain? Did they just try to pick up uh, the the ball and say, "Well, this is how I used to learn before we were all ex- expelled from Spain," uh, you know? So let's try to keep it up. They could have, <clears throat> after all, the northern half of Spain is close to the southern half of Spain. Moreover. As the 1100s went by in the 1200s the christians actually end up taking over you know three quarters and eventually you know literally literally 95 percent of spain uh, by the middle 1200s so it wasn't uh, you know uh, out of mind it wasn't out of possible that they would start picking up the spanish way of learning the, that they learned in the Rambam's time and the riffs time and all the rest of it but that my friends is not what happened <clears throat> instead something very interesting happened, or is a very important part of it, that after the collapse of Islamic Spain, some smart boys from the northern half of, the Christian part of Spain, in other words, they said, you know, we can't go any more south to Lucina and the Lakewoods and the Volusians and the Punaviches. that used to be 50, 60, 80 miles from our house in the southern part of Spain, because it doesn't exist anymore. So instead of sending one up among our own, Let's go to the other set of Volusians and Punoviches and, uh, you know, uh, liquids and whatever you want to call it, uh, in the north. Uh, but there aren't any in Spain. That's right. They went to Ashkenaz. And so you started to see, uh, first one was the Yad Mayor of Belafia, in the in 1100s. But by the time you get to the early 1200s, uh, boys from good families, aristocratic families who have a tradition of learning along with the money, uh, started saying, I'm going to go to another country north called France, which was very, very different cultural climate, and I'm going to go to the yeshivas there. And uh, I'll pick up their style of learning, because I hear it's very advanced. It's not exactly the way we used to do it in southern Spain, but it is certainly a a of system. And uh, that's what they did. And one of the first people is Yona of who as a young man, so if he's born in uh, 1210... So imagine somebody going, uh, let's give him, you know, 15 years old, say, in 1225 approximately, you know, something like that. He heads north, and he went to Normandy, which is part of Spain, uh, France. It was actually a separate duchy in, in, in France, to Evro. Now, most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Evro is a town in Normandy, in, in, in France. You, you, you look it up. And Evro was one of these examples of These small but very vibrant tosafistic yeshivas, the tosas you and I use today are really the tosas of Everil. You don't know it because it's gone through many uh, what's the right word, gilgals. But uh, because one of them was a, was a Belezotush, and that became the tosas took whenever. But uh, that's a whole schmooze by itself. I don't have time to do that on a podcast. Once in a while, when I go on the road, I do that one, but you have to have more learn and sophisticated audience to appreciate that, you know, the toastmas that we have today, where'd they all come from? Um, and these would be students of the Rajbah, not the Rajbah of the Rajbah, Ben Avram Absan, who's the guy that actually wrote the toastmas down in the form that we have it today. But in a more precise way, his students included these uh, people that you've never heard of <coughs> that they that uh, you see in Toastmas every once in a while and you see what they call Ibra, you know. Alphiyudyud based Rish Alph or something like that. So Pirish Ibra or Tosas Ibra or Moshe Moshe Ibra, and the, I don't know what it is, Is Evreux? You know, it's a well-known uh, town, not large, in uh, Normandy, in all the way, you know, uh, all the way in northern France. Super Catholic, super, you know, not uh, Spanish. So what? And he went up there, and uh, he learned there for a number of years, learned of a storm, and he became Ashkenized. Meaning his so uh, there's no question in my mind that, yeah, he wasn't speaking Spanish anymore, He's speaking French or Yiddish or something like that, whatever they spoke over there, <clears throat> and he's picking up the, uh, what shall I say, the style of learning for sure from these famous balitosas that you never heard of, Ramosha of Evero, Shmule of Evero, you know, uh, they're, believe me, they're big players, and uh, I'll say it again, they're Talmudim of the Rajbo, not the Rajbo, but the Rajbo, so, you know, the Rajmashan, so they're b- big people, and, um, he, of course, he knows the Ashkenazi way of davening and the um, and, and all the rest of the, even though he's not Ashkenaz. <clears throat> he remained what he was, a Catalonian Jew, a Spanish in the Barcelona-Gerona sense, which is a certain province in Spain. That's who he was all his life. But nevertheless, he ain't your typical Sephardi guy, That you know, uh, Sephardi born, Sephardi bred, and when you die, Sephardi dead. It's so, you know, he went through a period in which he learned in a very, very different environment. It's a little bit like these uh, Moroccan and other kids that, you know, went, when I was young and young before my time, you went to Mir, to, to Lakewood, and all the rest, used to see this. So even though they're coming from, uh, you know, Tunisia, Morocco, all the rest, they become liturgized to some degree, you know what I mean. So, even though it may inspire him, of course. So that's what happened with him. So he's the first one. After him came a whole bunch of kids. And it's part of a trend. And, um, I can't exactly say he's the first he, his cousin did the same thing, the Ramban, except in the case of the Ramban, who also lived in Gorona, so they knew each other, they were close friends and so forth, uh, even though the Ramban is 10 years older and lived 10 years longer. <clears throat> the Ramban lives like something from uh, 1194 to, I don't know, 1270 or whatever, and Beniona lived, born 10 years later and lived and died 10 years earlier. But having said that, um, the Ramban also is a, a Spanish boy who, in his case, if I remember correctly... He didn't go to Lakewood, Lakewood came to him. Ramnison Turkontai, who was reminiscent of the small, stupid little French town called Turkontai, uh, came and uh, got a job uh, as a Rebbe in Spain. And therefore, he was Mashpee in that way, on the Ramban. So here you have a definite trend, which is, especially in Aragon, Spanish boys are learning in Litvish yeshivas, or in that case, those cases, too sophistic yeshivas, and they brought into Spain the sophistic style of learning, which means all the, um, what do you call it, the uh, dialectics? Uh, you know, Im Tomar this, Yishlamar that, What do you, you have to, a steer between two Gemaras, or you know, what it says in this place, Nishas, and that place, Nishas, or, you know, Minea Bay, the typical things that we see in Tosas, uh, they brought into Spain, and that became the style, the dialectical style that was characteristic of Ashkenaz, but had not been characteristic of Spark, now entered Ashkenaz, and that's why in the 1200s, when these boys came home and started their own schools, the yeshivas, all the rest of it, they revolutionized the whole concept business. And all the famous rabbis that you've heard of in the yeshiva are, come from Aragon, from Catalonia, in the 1200s. It's Rabbeinu it's the Ramban, it's the Rajba, it's the Ritva, and later the Ran and uh, so forth. You understand? And, uh, and people like that. So these are the meat and potatoes of the yeshivas. And they're Ashkenazi boys from Christian Spain and northern half of Spain who went and, uh, as I say, converted mentally to the Ashkenaz way of learning and then brought it back to uh, Spain. And as you know, you look at these Kadushim of these Rishonim, it's the same kashis and Toshis, sometimes the t- same terrace, of course, sometimes not the same terrace. And then that's your job as a Makachir to say, how come Tosas gives this, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, terrace, this Yishlomar, and the Rajva, or the Ramban, or the Ritva, or one of those people, you know, or Ben for that matter, uh, gives a different terrace. And then then you're off to the races. So uh, Reynion is, therefore, a very important historical figure in this regard. But it doesn't end there. While he was there, he got, shall I say, brainwashed Ashkenaz-style in the the sense that very anti-philosophical, very right-wing, very anti-Maimonidean. And the Rambam died in 1204. Um, So the Rambam died about five years before he was born. The Morin was translated around that time, about 1205. Uh, the Morin Avuchim had been written by the Rambam in around 1190 or so, uh, which was, you know, uh, let's say uh, 20 years before Rebani was born. But it didn't get out there. It was in Arabic. It wasn't translated in Hebrew for everybody to read until the early 1200s. And then when it hit, it had explosion, the Morin the guy for the perplexed. Um, because has all these ideas, which could be strange to a super yeshivish, uh, literalistically minded Ashkenazi yeshiva student, which is what most people are today. Uh, because the Rambam undertakes to give a philosophical and metaphorical interpretation of a lot of things that people don't feel comfortable regarding it as metaphorical and philosophical, even though they don't necessarily take it literally either. You understand? So that's a whole discussion by itself, but nevertheless, that was the discussion at that time. So all I can tell you is, that the publication of the murder of in the early 1200s and its reaching of Spain and then France uh, led to um, a polarization. Uh, half the people loved it. They said, this is the greatest thing since the Swiss cheese. Now he's explaining the whole Torah and all the stories in the Torah that bother me in a very clear, logical, philosophical fashion. This is Gavaldi. These people became known as the Maimonideans. But there were also other people who said, this is crazy. Where do you get this from? They all knew the Rambam's a big Talmud Nobody challenged that. They all said the Rambam's a great man. Nobody challenged that. But this stuff is nuts, and uh, and it's kafira, so it's weird. He's not a kofer. You Hear what I am saying? They didn't say the They wouldn't say is a Kofir. and they say he's a tzaddik. But nevertheless, great as he is, certain parts of what he wrote are kafira. That's what they held. And uh, <clears throat> one of the main this this really developed, I would say, in in France, in southern France. <clears throat> and Abena Yona ended up after he learned in Normandy maybe he met the guy there whatever uh, with Rav Shlom Minahar uh, who was a Spanish Jew also from Barcelona but ended up having yeshiva in southern France and that yeshiva became like a Sotmer headquarters <clears throat> extreme right wing and they and they were the ones like you see today you know they put a Pashkavil in and all this stuff It's exactly what happened at that time they once became convinced that the Rambam's philosophical writings are total kafira. Again, they had the difficult task of being Pagin and Diburah. Yes, the Rambam's a great man, and the Mishnah Torah is great, and he was a wonderful person, and so on and so forth, and Tzadik of them. They said all that. However, so having said that, this part about Telchus day is Kfira, and this part of Mernubuchim, this part of Mernubuchim is Kfira, and... Oh my goodness! Anybody does is a uh, coffer and so on and so forth. Mind you, the Rambam had ticked them off by saying anybody imagines God could have a goof is going to burn in hell. Uh, they said we can imagine that not literally, perhaps, but in some fashion. And uh, you know, so sharp words in a part of the Rambam led to very sharp reactive words, and we call this in history the Maimonidean controversies. <clears throat> and the guy was smacking the belly button of this whole. Controversy was the young assistant to the Rosh Hashiva in Montpellier And the, the Rosh Hashiva was Rosh Lom and Ahar, and the young assistant was Yona Yonah Geronah. And uh, they became like, uh, you know, like I said, were the headquarters for the Pashkavilan. They put out letters, and the Rosh Hashiva said to Rebbeinah Yonah, you used to learn up north in Normandy, you know all the Ashkenazi Rosh Hashivas. They'll be shocked if you show them this stuff. So go up there and show them this stuff and get a harem. And he got one. He went up there. They didn't know much about the Rambam. Let's put it this way: they knew about the Rambam as a great Talmud but they didn't know about philosophy stuff, and they didn't understand a bit of it uh, because it wasn't part of the whole Yeshiva Mahalach a uh, 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 Machshava. And you know, the Rambam was coming from an Aristotelian perspective and all that. And so they said, "Yeah, this is definitely kafira, of course." Or they didn't use the words kafira. They didn't say those words, but they said so. Put a chirim on it, uh, and what they meant was very much an attitude that you'll find in the frum world today, which is, of course you should learn the Mishnah Torah Yom Valayla, Reb Chaim Brisker wrote on the Mishnah Borah, we all know that, the Mishnah Melech, and the, uh, you know, Kessah Mishnah, all that, of course, of course, of course, but the Maravucham Nisht, You in, the Marvuchim is not for you, who knows what it means, but that's not something we, we generally dally in. And they use stronger language, but that's what it boils down to. Well, 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 all I can tell you is, a gigantic reaction hit from the left wing. Now, the left wing was everybody else except the Pashkavilan guys, meaning these guys backed themselves in a the corner. And the way the Maimonides pro-guys, took it is, you insulted the Rambam. and called them names, which isn't exactly what happened, but nevertheless, it smelled of that, and the reaction was uh, gigantic. And all over uh, the place, starting in northern Spain, they started issuing cheirems on... Uh, the guys that put this out, especially they stigmatized what's his name, uh, the name, the and Menahar, and the Rebbeinu Yona Garona, <clears throat> and another guy you never heard of. And so all of a sudden, these guys became infamous. You understand know, by putting a Once upon a time, a was considered an important big deal. The Ramban was like in the middle of this because he kind of sympathized with uh, you know the anti-Maimonides on some points, but in the other, he realized very clearly that it seemed that it's very hard. To do as they say before, Palgini de Bora, you know to say the Rambo is great, but the ideas are not great and uh, and he certainly liked his cousin of Girona, but all hell broke loose. I can tell you that, and people fought, and by the time it's over, nobody knows there's a lot of legends about this i got there are a lot of lies and legends about this whole episode because that's what Jews do, and they're famous mice as they hear there and there, but they're just not true, but by the time it's over, somebody caused somewhere. The burnings of the round bomb by the Catholic Church. Okay? Now, it's very possible the right wing did it, but we don't know that for sure. But everybody thought they did. Everybody thought Rabbi Shlomo and Ahar went to the Catholic Church and it was demolishing on them and this and that and the other. We don't know that from a history perspective, but you know, that's what they thought. And uh oh my goodness, you know, he uh, and, and mind you, the people that were opposed to Rabbi Shlomo and Ahar and the others said the same thing. They said he's a big Talmachacham, he's a real from guy, no question about it. But on this particular item, he went off to Derek, he's nuts, and he he should be put in excommunications. Same thing with Yonah Garun, his young assistant. So here's a guy who's about 25 years old, maybe 30 years old, something like that. This story happened in the early 1230s. So Rebunah Yonah was born in um, 1210. was a guy 22, 23, 25 years old. Yeshiva haker, as we call today. Uh, who has got his, you know, it probably was writing the Paschka, right? His, his finger right in the middle of the whole <clears throat> controversy, you understand? And it got really bad. There are many stories that go, when, one will never know which is the truth, but they do say that the other side was so angry that they burned the books that they were malshin on Shlomo Nahar, and they chopped his tongue out. Uh, I'm talking about the Catholic Church. Uh, by the time... Because all you have to say in the Middle Ages this guy dissed Jesus. That's all that you have to say. They'll, they'll punish you <coughs> whether it's true or not. <clears throat> you know, you're talking about the 1200s over here. I'm not going to give a history disquisition. The Roman Catholic Church was in an anti aristotle mood in the early 13th century because of the Albigensian crisis. But that's not for here or now. But they were <laughs> very predisposed to hear Time is against an Aristotelian pre, uh, presentation of cosmology and religion. Be that as it may... The whole thing ended up in a terrible mess, and uh, there is a story that is widely believed, I don't believe it, it's in one book called Tagmulia Nefesh from a Hill of Verona, where he says that uh, as a result of all this, ben de Beniono and he publicly apologized, and he went around from community to community all over Spain, saying, uh, I sinned against the Rambam, and uh, heaven forgive me, and that's why he wrote the Shari Chu and all that, that's a bunch of baloney, but it's a good story. He was going to go to Eretz and all the rest of it. Now, having said that, I don't know, I wasn't there, but the historical records don't seem to bear that at all. It's just one of the really good stories for a perche or something, you know. Rabbis like to use it in blogs or whatever. But it's a vivid story. What actually happened, as far as I can tell, and that's all you ever get with me, as far as I can tell, is that here's a guy who was, like I say, 20, years old, Remy yet a grown-up. Uh, This stuff happened in the early 1230s, so he was in his 20s. Uh, Once all this blew away, he says, I'm out of here. And he returned back to Spain, to Barcelona, uh, which was a thriving Jewish community. He got a job in a local yeshiva uh, because everything I just told you is taking away from the fact that mainly he was a Gemara learner, (laughs) you know what I mean? Mainly he was a yeshiva type guy, and mostly what he learned in Ashkenaz was just as we call today, Gemara Shittosis. No, it's the Tosifistic Analysis of the Gemara itself. So Rabbeinu was an Iyun guy, you know, not a Bikiyas guy, Iyun guy. And he was, for the rest of his life, uh, a Rosh Hashiva. Uh So he, here's a story that happened, when he, let's say he's 25, and he died at the age of uh, 53. So put it together, you know, not even 30 years like that. The only thing is that his reputation was such that Eventually, he got an offer for a better yeshiva position or a rabbonist position, and that was in Toledo, and uh, that's where he went, and that's where he spent the rest of his life. So he was in Barcelona, which is in Aragon on the Mediterranean Sea, and then he was in Toledo, uh, which was the capital city of Castile, which these are two important, very important Jewish communities. Now, he's somebody who came from a wealthy family, from, uh, the Germans called Bildung knows an aristocratic Jewish family in the sense of learning and money, and all the rest of that. Uh, that is true, no question about it. And on the other hand, he was Rosho Rubin learning. So if you want to really know who Revena was, you got to do um, his alumships for him, which have not survived. So he's a big Magat Shio. The only one I know of is the one in on Baba Alias Elias Yona, which I remember from the Yeshiva days. I don't think I've looked at it in 20 years. Uh, but you remember Elias Ravena on, on Baba uh, You know, it's Alios because after he does the sugi, called What's the bottom line? What's the sikum of the sugi? So, ola is z'aliyos, to benayona. But I believe he wrote a Hoshas, or something like that. That's what they say. Um, and his students included all the big Russian Shibas that came afterwards, you know, as far as that's concerned. And uh, therefore, his main thing was the learning. We've all heard, you know, you look in the back of the Gemara, what do you call uh, uh, what is it called, Tal- Talmidi uh, Rabbeinu Yonah, you know, in the, in, on the riff and all that sort of sort of thing, like in Brachas, you know, places like that. So those are halacha and learning. They're not, uh, you know, philosophy and all the rest of it. On the other, so, so I just want you to understand. So we're dealing with a person who primarily was in learning. I think part of the reason that he backed out of the polit- world of and politics is that when you bite, somebody bites you back. Uh, when you write a Pashkavilan, they can write one about you. And in his case, since the Maimonidean side thought that the anti-Maimonidean side is putting out outrageous uh, pamphlets and, and Pashkavilan, as they say, so they started attacking him and they said, I guess, we all know your grandfather, your great-grandfather was married to Pelegish. Meaning, your grandparents were not married. Now, uh, this, and, and this drove him crazy. And the Ramban got involved. And he said, it's not true. And we made a hakira. It's not so. You see, it touched a button. So it must have been something back there in the woodwork. Uh, and uh, this touches on the fact that uh, this is, I won't say it's unique to Spain, because unfortunately it wasn't. But in Spain, because you had the Muslims, and the Christians, and the Jews, and everybody's submission, and this conquest and that conquest, he had a big problem with the uh, morality and the immorality in in the Jewish communities in Spain. Of course, the Kabbalah and Geisha communities. I'm not interested in the Jewish communities. And all the way through all these centuries, he always had a big problem with like, uh, what they call Pilagshem, which means, well, in English, a concubine, that doesn't mean anything. Pilagshem is a loaded term. It can mean a Jewish girl, it can mean a Geisha girl, it can mean a be Either one. It depends how and when it's used. And, It's very complicated, but people would have a wife, but that's your former wife. But then they also also, also want to have somebody on the side. That could be Jewish. uh, So why didn't you marry her? Well, she was your maid. And you're from a chasha family. You're not going to marry a maid. But meanwhile, she had two, three children with her. So therefore, she's a pelagish. So the wife lives in one house, the maid lives in another. This is crazy. Uh, This they picked up from the Muslims. You understand? Uh, Which is very common. And that was a hal Because... In addition to that, you also had the following phenomenon, which is many books have been written on this by the way uh unfortunate phenomenon you also had the following phenomenon that uh people just uh took uh live in uh gaiimish women, so you could be a Jewish guy, especially wealthy or something like that. he has a Jewish wife and addition to he he has two or three or four. Uh, that they they're going, Muslim women, Christian women, you know, in the Muslim countries, they would take Christian women, because they were the captives. In the Christian countries, they were Muslim women, they were the captives. And it wrecked the whole Jewish life. If you know where to look, you'll see that this farmer actually complaining about this all the time. It was a problem in Spain. It was a makasa Medina, and you couldn't get rid of it. You did not have this in Ashkenaz, to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> you didn't have this in most countries, but you definitely had it in Spain. It's like, it's, it's weird, but that was, that was there. And so, when they called his, his that you're descended from a Pelegish, I assume they meant a Jewish one, but even then, that means you came from a low class background. And he said, it's a lie. This shook him to the core. And what's really interesting is that uh, you find a lot of discussion in halachic literature by Ben Yonah and the Ramban, who are the two people affected by this. What exactly is a Pelegish? And specifically, the famous question in the Middle Ages is, the a Pelegish uh, mutter? Or us, or is it only for a king, for a melech, or is it for anybody? And there are a lot of opinions back and forth in this. And there is a famous letter um, in the Shuvas which really means the Shuvas the from the Ramban, True so Remember, they're first cousins, but the Ramban is ten years older. <coughs> and the Ramban is being asked, "What's the bottom line with bottom line with the Pelegish. And the Ramban says, "Okay, now he's talking about the Jewish." He said, "It's okay. You look through the Tanakh. It's in the it's in the of Rashua, Volume Eight. Okay, that's where if you want to go looking for it. Which I'll tell you again, Chubis of is what they call Mucosus L'Ramban. So it says Chubis it really is Ramban. Although now the historians will tell you that's wrong. There really are Chubis of but some of them, like uh, the, the one on the uh, which is in the two eighties, you look over there in the two eighties. That's uh, I remember. It's uh, definitely Ramban writing to Raminiona." And, you know, the Ramban says it's a harmset mutter, okay? Which is strange for us today, but remember, he's a Sephardi, and it's harmset mutter. And uh, this issue about Pilaxim, whether he can have not a second wife, but an additional wife of Pilagish, which sounds totally nuts to us today, for those who know the issue, popped up and down in Jewish history uh, down the centuries, even in Ashkenaz, or the way to go, Yaakov and other people like that. And I want to tell you something. In my opinion, I could be wrong, I hope I'm wrong. This is something which will be relevant. Uh, give, me, uh, give me another two Democratic presidents. Because uh, if they permitted gay marriage, uh, then they'd have polygamy pretty soon in the United States of America. Because if you don't say that a marriage is defined as one man and one woman, then what's the stop? You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, N, G, H, I, J, K, L, F, N, F, P. You, know, you, can, you can make any combination you want. Why can't two ma- guys marry one woman in one marriage? Or one guy marry five women in five one woman married five guys, you know, they're, they're, once you tell me it's just strictly consensual, you could do whatever you want, and all of a sudden, I know it sounds crazy what I'm saying, and I hope what I'm saying is nuts, and that people look back and say, Catherine's eccentric. Uh, but I fear not. I fear that you'll start to see uh, in the, uh, you know, English halachic literature, oh, what about Pelegesh? What about this? Because the polygamy will become popular in American society. The way that Hollywood and everybody's trying to push the gay marriage to become popular American society, it's very interesting so you had this in a different context in the 13th century in Spain and um, the Ramban as I said, said it was, it, he, he said his motto, let's put it this way honestly he favored it, although it, he's pretty positive on it, as I recall in the Tshuba, it's kind of funny um, as far as that goes and again it's like in the I remember it's the eighth volume of the de <coughs> excuse me by contrast, this is very interesting to me by contrast, Rav Yon himself is very against it. Uh, and in the Shari too, I just recall this. In the Shari too, he said, "Oh, uh, it's in Chelik Shlishi, Shari Shlishi." He's talking about Habala Shifcha, Darm lechayvim, he says Besim Shnei He's all against Bala Shivcha. and here he means like a Shivcha in the house. Uh, and he says Kanoim Pogimbo, and oh my goodness. And besides this, he's got a long rant on this. And then the God will punish him one way or the other. He's very strongly against it because this is a hot button item of his time. It's just kind of interesting. The Rabbeinu Yonah, uh, therefore, became known in the super yeshivish world for his uh as they say you know, in the back of the brachas and such places, and and Benayona. However, that's not what, what what's funny is, here's, here's Mazel, the luck of the uh, publishing world. That's not what put him on the map. Most people have never heard of Alias Benayona. I don't think so. and uh, If they have, they never looked at it. Uh, so, what is it? He wrote a Musser book. He was into Musser. Now, I want to be clear. This is like Rebaron Cutler. Musser is important to him, but that's not the Iker. It's interesting, he's not, not exactly the way we imagine him. But nevertheless, I would say he was a person of lumdus and Musser. That's who he was. Not philosophy, we saw he was not today, he was an opponent of Maimonides, but Musser. And he wrote a book, apparently a big book, called Shari And this is supposed to be a, a, a grand Musser treatise. Uh, in other words, it would be a typical sort of Ashkenazic style. Uh, I would, In my opinion, I'm guessing it would be something along the lines of a gigantic archa or something, something like that. Maybe I'm wrong, but something like that. What's interesting is, most of the book got lost. Only one chapter survived. The chapter survived a Shari Tshuba. <laughs> This mm-hmm. little book put him on the map. And anybody who's ever heard of Ben I think, uh, knows from the Shari Tshuba. That's what I think. Um, now, maybe you're one of the unusual people that you're into, say for Michele with the page Ben Yonah, he's got one of Mishle's, I don't think that's such a popular, I mean, I don't think the average person learns Mishri out there. He does have one of Pirkei and that one's a little bit more known. But in my opinion, especially anybody who's ever been through any kind of yeshiva, it's the Shari Tshuva, because they make you have a Musar Seder. There's three famous books from the Musar. It's the Shari Tshuva, the Sharma, and the Orchus, did they give me that right? When I was young, like many, I couldn't stand it. You know, you went through the menu with your dad, used to have a half hour or whatever, I don't remember how long in their Israel, and they, you know, I did my share of Shai Chubh and this, and the other, it didn't, didn't mean anything, but like everything else, when I had 30, and I was already married, and I had my own time, I did my own, time, did my own time, way and pace, I rediscovered the book, same thing with Silas and especially since they published now, you know, already 30, 40 years ago, what I regard as this very, very nice edition, is very yeshivish in Israel, um, you, you've seen this old Minukah, it's got Pesach is it's called. And I remember, it's an anonymous author that Rav Shach says on the front, doesn't want to be numb, it's a good pierce. And it is, uh, because it's very minimalistic. And then I said, well, I just discovered an interesting book. And I've gone through the Shai Chua a bunch of times since then, from literature point of view. Meaning, it's interesting, what's say for just to see. The best part, and right now, for example, tomorrow night, once a week, now it's the winter, so I have a, a like you said, a Chabur or whatever in my house with a couple of guys where we do Shari at this part, at this particular time of the year. It's not what we do all year. Now you might say like this, wait a minute, that's for the Chodesh owl. And you're right about that. There's no question about it. Shari is usually associated with pre-Rosh Hashanah. That's true. However, not exactly. I'll tell you what I mean. The Shari has like four parts, isn't that right? And the first two parts about how to repent and, uh, you know, like you say, Chodesh Owl types stuff and how... Yogo, and Anocha, and all this kind of business, um, which are the mechanics of the repentance process. And he's pretty eloquent. You know, he's a very good writer as far as the style goes. It's not something that lends itself easily to translation because he's elegant Hebrew. So once in a while, his Hebrew is a little too elegant, unless you have a good pierce at the bottom, because he has these turns of phrase which don't work in English. But anyway, forget that. The Shar Shlishi, the third part, he goes through his own personal idiosyncratic interpretation of the Tariq mitzvahs, there are a lot of them. That I find fascinating. You understand? That you can do all year long, and still so say, what does it mean, you know, what does it mean? And he doesn't give you a regular one-line business. He's always got a different twist on it. You understand? He's got, he, he's got a different twist on it. And uh, it's, uh, uh, what can I tell you? I found it very, very interesting, and I still do, and uh, this put him on the map. So here's a person who was a big Rosh shiva, and his Muslim book is what made him famous. It's funny how uh, how the world goes. Uh, his, as I say before, he became the rabbi of a lot of famous people that came after him, you know, all this sort of thing. I forget which exactly was the Rajva Talmud of his, I believe. And uh, people like that. Yeah, I think Rashba was a Talmud of his. And, and so uh, he became, as we would call today, one of the big Rosh shivas, And his Talmud also became the big Rosh shivas. This is the Golden Age of the Jews of Aragon. It's the 1200s. That's when you get all the famous names. And it lasted down till 1391, when they were pretty much wiped out. Uh, and this is what the Ishibas live off today. So Rabinu is a central character over there. And it seems that after that controversy, when it was the young 20s, he stayed away from fights about the Ramam I and that kind of business, like, majorly. I think, in my opinion, that's the source of the legend, then he went around apologizing for attacking the Rambam all the rest of it. But as far as I'm aware, I'm not a bucky in this, I don't remember him ever quoting the Rambam. Certainly not in the Shari Chuba, Uh which is kind of interesting, you know. But on the other hand, he didn't want any fights in the Makhlukas because everybody got messed up uh, uh, from it. I think this business with the uh, pelegish was bothering the family's reputation for years afterwards, and the Ramban strongly condemned those who did that. And uh, so here you have two cousins. Uh, and not only were the cousins, but I think their kids married, if I remember correctly. So the two cousins, the Ramban and the and Yona, both from the same area. Obviously, there was something in the water at that time that you had uh, the growth of some really profound uh, individuals. The Ramban took a turn for mysticism, did he not, for Kabbalah? I don't see this in the Urbani Yona. He took a turn in Ashkenazic piety, and Shari Chu is, smells a lot of the Ashkenazic piety, but in the elegant, very elegant Hebrew of the Spanish style. So it's a very nice uh, blend in that regard. And uh, he therefore leaves a very vivid picture in Jewish history. He was, if you're a historian, you want to know what life was like in Spain at that time, you can read the Shari Chuba. He blasts the Olam constantly. And you can find all the sins Spanish Jews are guilty of, including the one with the Pelekish and all that, uh, in the Shari Chuba. Uh My goodness, he... He uh, is no uh, sparer of, uh, you know what I mean, insults. He he does all that. But he did it because this is the community in which he lived. And uh, there, the 1200s was not a bad time in Spanish history particularly, but the Jews always lived on the, on the edge of a sword, and uh, he was part of that era. I think I'll close it down here. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbydovecats.com.